It's hard to believe this is our 300th episode of a podcast we started in an attempt to simply bring more evidence-based approaches back to the world of health and wellness, a world that too often chases dollars by leaning in on fads and headlines. Frankly, at the time, I was already feeling somewhat overwhelmed when we started this thing. But Susanna suggested, you know what, just try releasing them as the schedule allows and let's see where it goes. And thanks to you, your encouragement, and especially you sharing the podcast with others, you've nudged this little project up to being just outside the top 1% of all podcasts. We've released weekly episodes ever since day one, and that brings us to today's big number 300. Longtime listeners know we've been incredibly fortunate to have just so many incredible guests over the years, and we've made an extra effort to feature the best of the best on those big ones. Number 100, Drs. James and Janice Prochaska, creators of the Stages of Change model. Number 200 featured Dr. Bill Miller, who, along with today's special guest, Dr. Stephen Rolnick, developed motivational interviewing, which has changed and continues to change the world since it was first developed way back in 1983. I'm Dr. Brad Cooper, host of this Catalyst 360 podcast, and we're grateful to have you join us. Thanks for spending part of your week with us. We could not be more pleased than to have Dr. Rolnick join us for this special 300th episode. On the coaching front, our next MBHWC-approved coach certification training, which has today's topic of motivational interviewing very much at its core, is just around the corner. Small class sizes, personal connection with instructors and mentor coaches, and support from the day you register through your preparation for the national board exam if you choose to go that route and well beyond. Details on our institute site, catalystcoachinginstitute.com, or reach out anytime. We can set up a time to go through your specific questions, concerns about your career, that kind of thing. Results at catalystcoaching360.com. And for employers, EAP, and even wellness service providers looking for ways to support and enhance employees' physical and mental health, Catalyst Coaching 360 might be exactly what you've been seeking. Offering personalized, best-in-class coaching you can integrate it into any current program or platform including the new trademark 360 Wellbeing Checkup Coaching Model. Details available, catalystcoaching360.com or reach out via that same email, results at catalystcoaching360.com. And now it's time to pull back the curtain on motivational interviewing with one of the original creators of the methodology, Dr. Stephen Rolnick, on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Welcome to the Catalyst 360 Podcast. We've been working hard to get this on the calendar, and I appreciate you joining us for this really special 300th episode. So thank you. No problem at all, Brad. I'm happy to help and to follow your lead. You'll lead me places and... We'll see where it goes, right? Sure thing. Why don't you kick it off? We've got a lot of people that MI is core, and folks, you're going to hear me say MI all the time. It's motivational interviewing. It's one of the most utilized tools, resources in the counseling, coaching world. Uh, We're going to go down a lot of different, I think, rabbit trails today. But Dr. Rolnick, if you could just give us a little overview of of what is this thing called MI or motivational interviewing for those who might have drifted into this podcast and are saying, wait, what? Sure, sure. After about 40 years, I should be able to say it simply. Exactly. 1983, we're looking right at 40 this year. Yeah, it's 40 years, so you'd hope I could say it simply. If I can't, then I reckon um, get to wonder what I've learned. Look, uh, yeah, motivational interviewing is a, a style of counseling or conversation that you have 
have with somebody. Okay. It's a style of conversation about change. It's not about a whole lot of other things. It's a conversation about change. Often when someone feels uncertain, and instead of you solving the problem for them, okay, you do a few things that will strike you as being very familiar and quite different to solving the problem. They'll sound familiar, and so they should be. You engage first of all. You help them say why and how they might change. That's a critical piece. And you demonstrate respect for whatever decision they take. Mm. Okay. So how's that? That sounds very simple, which it is. But what we, I guess we've learned over 40 years is that there's depth and complexity to it. Mm. Okay. And this can be done skillfully or less so. And we've tried to clarify and understand what is involved when you have a constructive conversation about change with somebody in which they, rather than you, say why and how they might change, supplemented by your best information and advice. Okay. How's that? I did say it in about a minute. It's not too bad. <laughs> yes, it's, it sounds so simple when you say it, and yet one of the biggest barriers, at least that we find as we're training coaches in the skill, is it, you just so desperately want to give your advice. You just so want to step in there. What do you see that once people have developed the skill set, or is it simply a matter of practice, or are there a few cues that folks can use that are trying to utilize this tool? Yeah, we just we see that all the time, and, and and more so in those who are paid to be experts. Your physicians, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, counselors, etc. They're they're often paid for their advice. And so now it's hard to get that hat off. Any guidance along those lines? Because I do love the simplicity in how you described it. And yet it's it's tough to get into that habit. Sure. And of course, the 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 there's some pretty tough environments where practitioners have to operate. Sure. I appreciate that being in them. Yeah. Found myself in that situation. And in fact, motivational interviewing was born in an extremely tough environment, yeah, which was addiction treatment, yeah. um, full of aggression, resistance, and so on. That's where it came from. And, you know, to his credit, William R. Miller, who was really the person who wrote this paper that I saw, I was asked to review it in 1982. I'd never heard of him or the idea. <laughs> yeah. Can't say that um, anymore, can you? Yeah, so I got sucked into it then. But, you know, this is something that's simple and difficult to do, okay? Like uh, soccer. If you look at people playing soccer, in one sense, you can say, well, what they're doing is they're kicking a ball, right? But as we know, uh, there's there's variations in level of skill. But look, um, what we've realized, and it's been a, a matter of, of, of delight and great interest, is that it is possible 
to give someone advice and information. It's how you do it mm. and when you do it and how much you are invested in the outcome. And put simply, a quality helper, let's call this person a helper, okay, is emotionally regulated and contained in the delivery of the advice and information that they give and respectful of whatever decision someone takes. Mm. So you and you, you could then say to me, okay, so how do you do that? And we can do that. I don't think it's a rabbit hole. I think it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for practitioners and people. Yeah. Of yeah. All- yeah. Let's do it. To learn how to give information and advice that is rich, expert, expertly, expert in content, but expertly delivered. And that's the piece that 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 we've unpicked. But motivational interviewing is 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 a lot more than just giving information and advice. It's a conversation in which you connect with someone very well. That's a skill. And you help them to clarify why and how they might change. That's a positive, forward-facing horizon you're looking at. So it's not just a conversation that goes around in circles. It's purposeful, and it's focused on change. And how that conversation is navigated is what we provide guidelines for. And, you know, I can I can speak to that in whatever way you'd like. But look, this is a way of being with someone when you have a conversation with them. It's not something you do to or on them. Yes, that's so well said. Yes, exactly. Okay. It's something you do with them on their behalf, not to or on them. Okay. And it requires you to there to be an element of detachment from your part on your part. You can't be too emotionally invested, which is why it's it's got its limits at home, not entirely. <laughs> <laughs> but but if if you want a kid's bedroom cleaned, you're a bit over-invested, right? Um, and you've got this trust and faith in their ability to have the wisdom inside them to find the solution. And the conversation is navigated in such a way that you are tuned into their strengths. You are tuned into their strengths and wisdom. So that's a, a topic we can um, explore. So let's sit on that for a second because we come from yeah. addictions route. You, I would think, and I don't live in that world, so I may be speaking off track here, but you would think that individual may not want to stop their they They may be like, no, like this is just what I've stopped bugging me about it. How, how then do you step in, or or is MI? Do we need to have some other conversation before we can utilize the MI tools in that situation, for example? No, yeah, you can you can dive straight into it, bearing a few clear guidelines. One of which is step back, don't try and persuade this person to change. Try not to label and judge them. Try to see them as a person first, 
addict or client second. Try to see them as someone with strengths who appreciates being heard and who likes to have choice. Now, that's an attitude that you exude. Yes, yes. yes. Under those conditions, even the most hardened addict, if you like, will start to feel comfortable and less confronted and less defensive. Now, if you start talking to them about the struggle they're having with substance and you listen hard with skill to how they feel about it, the level of trust between you is going to rise and their sense of psychological and emotional safety will increase. It is in that state of mind that you can then quite easily ask them about their addiction in such a way that they give voice to usually what is uncertainty. They might say, mm. oh, I think I need to change this. Wah, 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 wah. Most people with addiction problems have got a voice in their heads that say, this is not working out very well. Right. There are some problems. And so very early on in motivational interviewing, we pinpointed this problem of ambivalence or uncertainty. And in the case of addiction, it's my best friend and also my worst enemy. Okay. This ambivalence or uncertainty about what to do isn't just confined to addiction, but it's heightened in that field. Okay. And what we found was that if you come alongside someone genuinely free of prejudice and you treat them like a human being, they will feel safe and comfortable enough to talk to you about that other side. Mm. When they talk about that other side, you don't pounce on it or try and persuade them to change. You gently steer the conversation. It's like blowing... It's like blowing oxygen or air into a fire. You gently blow into that part of them, that fire, so that it gets warmer, easier to handle, and feels more manageable. Love that. Analogy. So this, I mean, what I've said is pretty abstract, really, but uh, it's quite tricky trying to explain um how a conversation like this unfolds, because you've taken a really tough example. But the principles are the same, whether it's somebody with an addiction or whether it's, let me think of an example. Last week, uh, an elite athlete says to me, I think I better phone the coach and just tell him I'm not up to it. I'm not up to it. I don't feel up to it. So part of that person wants to play that, in this big game, part of them doesn't. Okay. So there's that ambivalence again. So this is very common. Okay. I'm doing too much talking and I'm not doing enough listening to you. So I'm going to have a sip. No, people aren't here to hear me, my friend. This is, this is great. So I want to come back. One of the things that you've mentioned a few times that it's, it's key is that I, as as the counselor, the coach, I need to not be emotionally attached to the outcome. Am I saying that correctly? Because it seems like so. that is such a 
big deal. That eliminates convincing. That eliminates pushing. That eliminates if I truly, truly, truly feel that way, then it seems like that opens the door for MI to be far more effective. If I don't let go of that emotional attachment to the outcome that I want as the coach or the counselor, then it's almost impossible for MI to be effective. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? You, you, you'll struggle to really experience the, the beauty and skillfulness of MI. You'll struggle without that. Okay, good. Um, so we talked about, this is year 40 developed in 83 based on the paper you read in 82. We're in 2023 doing this interview. Did you have any idea? Like, did you read this and just, you're like, this is it. Or were you stunned the way this got momentum and has kept momentum? And now, I mean, it's the core of our coach training and we're not alone. A lot, a lot, a lot of programs use, utilize MI as the core element. Does that surprise you that 40 years later, it's still such I wouldn't even say it's such. I'd say it's even more important today than it was 25, 35 years ago. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I've noticed over the decades how familiar many of the challenges are that we identified way back. And I've noticed it, and so I've encouraged myself and others to explore them to the point now where I think what we're talking about, Brad, is a way of being helpful mm. to other people. Mm. It's a form of helpfulness. Yes. Okay. So if I started it all again, you might we might even let go of the word motivational interviewing and just describe a form of helpfulness. Okay. It's that widely relevant. To begin with, no, I didn't see the the the, the relevance. What I did notice was against the background of the personal experiences I had prior to 1982, which were not pleasant in the addictions field. When I saw this paper, I did think, wow, Mm. this this is a very, very different way of doing it. And those experiences I had were in some, some instances quite traumatic in the addictions field. Okay. They were quite traumatic. Happy to speak to them, but they were not pleasant. I then started practicing and using this. And a few years later, by coincidence, I met Miller in Sydney, Australia, by complete coincidence. And we realized we'd had similar experiences. Um, On the first day I met him, I said, look, that paper is too complicated. I reviewed it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You should should write a book on this. And he was shocked. He said, nobody's ever contacted him about that paper. And I said, it's incredibly useful. And he said, well, do you want to write a book together? And that was the start. And that first edition was about treating addictive behaviors. Mm. Okay. That was the first edition of the textbook. It was called Motivational Interviewing, something, 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 addictive behavior. I've forgotten, to be honest. So uh, I was very heartened to read that paper and very enthusiastic. But no, when we sat down to write the first edition towards the late 80s, I think it was, we never, it was about addiction. Interesting. Wow. And how soon, so so what was that genesis then from, okay, we, we've got the paper, now we have a book that we've written 
six, seven years later, focus on addiction. When did it start to broaden out or when did folks start jumping on board or were you realized, you know what, we could use this in sport. We could use this in all these other ways. No, no, we never, I never thought that. And I have oversimplified that story because actually the reason I went to Australia was to do a doctoral dissertation, a PhD research effort. And that was on the use of motivational interviewing among heavy drinkers in general hospitals. Mm. Okay. So by the time I met Miller, I said to him, listen, I'm going to be doing some research on this, not for addiction treatment, but on heavy drinkers in a general healthcare setting. Um, And he thought I was coming from another planet. (laughs) But then soon after that, I, I became immersed in the relevance of this in healthcare because it wasn't just psychologists that were talking about difficulty in encouraging people to change. It was nurses, it was doctors, occupational therapists, everybody, right? And it wasn't just restricted to substances. It was somebody with diabetes who needs to get exercise, somebody with heart disease who needs to reduce their weight, and so on and so on and so on. So its relevance to lifestyle change became apparent to me very early on. Mm. And I, I guess I was in the pairing between Miller and I, I was always the one saying, hang on, this is relevant in other places. And he was always the one who kept very firmly to the psychotherapeutic roots of it. Cause that's his special gift. Right. And so there's a synergy between the two of us in that we have, in a way, different personalities, temperaments, and interests. So mine has always been to look outside and look beyond, and his has always been to look deeper. Let's dive into that. Let's let's chase that rabbit a little bit. Uh, fascinating to me, not many people are able to work together for 40 years. You two have had this immense impact that continues to come back with a New, you just your new book came out with the updated versions. You've you've continued this relationship. You're very different. You mentioned not just in where you live, but in temperament, in personalities, in perspectives. Talk to us more about that relationship and what that's been like, and and maybe some of the the hiccups along the way, and some of the things that have brought you back together. Just give us a peek behind the curtain with that relationship because it's made such an impact on so many. You needed both of you. And I'm very curious what that journey has been like together. Yeah, it's tricky because I I would be tempted to attribute the success of that to him. He might say, uh, no, he'd attribute it to me. But this is a very gentle and kind human being. Um, He is, it's like chalk and cheese. Deeply religious from a completely different background to me, lives in another continent, is an introvert, pathological introvert. Um, <laughs> and we had him on the podcast. So, I, yes, we got to know him a little bit, and all your things you're saying ring, seem to ring true. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's and he's deeply interested in psychotherapy and spiritual matters. And I am quite the opposite mm-hmm. on a lot of these. I'm a pragmatist. I'm an extrovert. Uh, I'm impatient. He is patient. Um, (laughs) I struggle terribly with writing and he can 
I've never met anybody who writes as quickly and as well as him. He never needs to do a second draft. Just comes out and he's a brilliant writer. Wow. I have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks <laughs> doing stuff uh, to get the writing right. So we are very different. And I think um, we've had to have tough conversations and get irritated with each other. Of course. That does happen. I think at the foundation, the foundation of it all of all of it is friendship and respect, which lo and behold, is probably using slightly different words, what's at the heart of motivational interviewing. In other words, if you if you're dealing with a, a let's say a homeless drug addict, right? Unless you are friendly and respectful and genuinely sincere about that, you won't get anywhere. So but between Miller and I, there was there was a background of we we uh, were in 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 Sydney in this foreign city in Australia for about a year together with our families. So we did lots of things, lots mm-hmm. of crazy together as as two families. So and you're in we were, early thirties at that point. Like where are you in yeah, life? Yeah, I'm probably yeah. I well yeah, I'm probably in early thirties. He's probably early forties. Okay. Because he's a good, he's probably ten years older than me. I've never asked him, but yeah, I know he's. I'm seventy now, right? So I'm scared to ask him how old he is. But yeah, yeah, that's right. We had young families and uh, very different families, very different interests. I was into surfing; that was my passion. He was about the last thing he was interested in, or he hated the beach, right? So you know, I mean. But but as I say, friendship and respect and and affection and affection. And I would say, again, I can see the link with motivational interviewing itself. And it might sound a bit kooky, and I probably wouldn't use the word. But if you don't feel the potential for affection for a human being, then you've got no right to be trying to talk to about them, talk to change about them. I'm being provocative. Oh, I love you, that. You've got to experience inside yourself the potential for respect and affection for this human being. I don't mean breaking the boundaries, professional sure, sure. boundaries. Right. I just mean looking at somebody and going, this is, this is actually a decent human being who's maybe had a rough ride and behaving strangely, but deep down, they're good ones, you know? Caring about the person, but not being emotionally attached to the outcome they choose. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would have thought so. Yeah. So there you go. There's some stories. Yeah. Any any others that pop into your head as you're as you're sharing some of this with you, with us about I don't know stuff you guys did with your kids that he's like, what are we doing here? And you're like, well, this is what we always do, or or any of those kind of fun things. As long as we're on this topic. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, there's been roughly 10 years between each of the f- four editions that we've written. The, the last one's just come out. Yes. In a way, it was a child of lockdown, as we had to do it during lockdown. But I remember the second edition, I think it was the second edition, we wrote in a, a friend's villa in Italy down the road here. And... Um, we had a great time. We had the we had kids around us, and we spent a week together alone before the families joined us. But by the time the families joined us, we were making pizza in some hole in the embankment. <laughs> there was a pizza oven, and Bill was taking one of my kids around in a wheelbarrow. 
singing a made up. He's a beautiful musician, actually. So he made up this special song for my boy and put him in the wheelbarrow and ran around the house with it. So, you know, there's another element, which is fun. Okay. And you might say, this is maybe a bit controversial. And probably I'm stretching it a bit, but you might say, in order to have a really constructive conversation about change with somebody, might be nice if there are times when you can laugh together. Mm. Okay. And I don't find that difficult working in sport. Right. Okay. Right. As you can imagine, because it's it's potentially a, a fun-filled environment. Or in education, where I wrote a book uh, on MI for school teachers. Okay, you go you go into a school and really if if you know, like my I've got a 12-year-old boy now. How did you like your first week at school, new school? Fun. Okay. There you go. There you go. That 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 promotes growth. Yeah. Change, right? So if we're talking about how you have a constructive conversation about change, in this conversation, which is actually quite fun to have, we're having fun and laughing, okay, we're coming up with some ideas, which is that if you have respect for someone and you feel the potential for affection and you can have fun, you can probably get quite good distance in having a conversation about change. But the content of that conversation can be very serious. So I'm not trying to make light of this, okay? Um, we're skirting around the edges, you and I, looking at the, if you like, the preconditions or the foundation for having a constructive conversation. What we're not doing, which I imagine you'll probably want to do, is say, okay, right, you know, what is, what are the dance steps, right? Because we're just trying to describe in words something that's like a dance. If you think about it, okay, it's very difficult to put in words what a dance style is and in what way it's different from another dance style. It's extremely difficult. It's, and that's what we're trying to do. It's a particular kind of conversation in which there's a whole lot of things you don't do. You don't pass judgment, label the person, see them as seething with problems. That's the most common mistake that helpers make. And boy, oh boy, if you go into elite sport where I am now, it's a widespread problem that, mm. and it's a widespread problem in sports coaching. Um, and if you listen carefully to the really illustrious and talented and respective sport, uh, respected sports coaches, you'll pick up that they take a different approach, which is very linked to motivational interviewing. And that involves an emphasis on establishing a good relationship, an emphasis on really getting to know the person, withholding judgment, trusting their ability to find the answers to these problems for themselves. So I, I'm sure I'm not alone with this. I'm hearing you say that Ted Lasso is coming to mind. Do you watch that show? Do you recognize MI in that show? Did they by chance consult with you and say, all right, we, we need your help on this one. This is this guy's gonna basically be using your tools in this TV show. Any, no, any thoughts yeah. on that? 
it's interesting. I, I did recognize it, and no, they didn't consult. And um, I think that's great that they didn't, because what it's pointing to is that quality coaching, quality helpfulness is not something that MI has a unique kind of claim to. What we're talking about is that quality coaching and helpfulness we can identify what's involved. And Ted Lasso had many of those elements, okay? All Miller and I have done, we didn't intend this, but this is where we got to, is clarify what's involved. Be quite specific about what's involved and add to that, okay? So we... We again, we didn't intend this from the outset, but I suggested about 15, 20 years ago that perhaps MI is, is a form of guiding as opposed to directing. It's a simple way of yeah, highlighting yeah, yeah. something raised right at the beginning, which is instead of being the expert director telling somebody why and how they might change, you are like a good sports coach, parent, school teacher, pastor counselor, you come alongside them with your expertise and you encourage them to search for the answer. Okay. And what we have added to that, because what I've just said is had you, your head was nodding. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's what a quality teacher, sports coach, parent will be doing. Ideally, what we've added to it, added to is what are the skills involved in, in having that conversation? What sort of language do people use when they talk about change? How do you respond to that language? Where does listening come in? And what does skillful advice giving look and feel like? Okay. So you will see somebody like Ted Lasso well grounded in this foundation. You won't necessarily see him using some of the skills that we've pinpointed in MI. So he would have done well to learn them, but I don't care that he didn't. <laughs> Leads you into it. Let, let, let's come back because you, you brought it up and it's actually was one of the things I wanted to dive into because one of the things that we're trying to do with students is helping them understand that dance that you talked about. Can, can you take a little deeper dive into that within the process of MI describing that flow, that dance to someone who this is kind of new to and they're just getting their arms around it? It's incredible. It's, it, that is a really difficult one. It's a, that is a really difficult question you've just asked, and it's worthy of, of thoughtfulness. Um, because I think what you're suggesting is that this is – and not just about the person they're speaking to, it's also about them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're saying, you're saying, how can they learn? How can how can they change so that they improve their ability to help someone else change? Exactly. Okay. So that's that's quite subtle because we tend to th think about different forms of helping, like motivational interviewing or I don't know cognitive behavior therapy or what are some of the other ones flying around as thing as you do too on someone else. And it's all about them. Yeah. And what you're saying is, hang on, whoa, we maybe got to start with us. Okay. And I think you're right. Okay. So what, 
I would say to someone learning is that start with yourself. Mm. Okay. What are you like when you're encouraging someone to change? Are you able to resist stepping in with what we call the writing reflex, right? Or the fixing reflex. Be aware of that. So it's your self-awareness of, are you able to be restrained? Can you practice restraint and an absence of judgment and not jumping in? Foundational. Yeah. Absolutely foundational. And, and not easy because this writing reflex gnaws away at you and you want to step in, okay? So you need to be restrained and patient. It doesn't mean the conversation takes longer. That's a whole subject that I've spent a lot of time on. You know, how do you have these conversations briefly? doesn't have to take longer. In fact, I would say it takes less time, more effective if you practice this restraint. So I, I've got my own personal guidelines for myself that I can share with you. I think they'll resonate with a lot of your learners. Okay. And I can share them with you. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. But if I sort myself out, okay, and I'll describe that to you in a second, people settle down and you can have a conversation that's got purpose and direction about change in them. And you focus the conversation on change and you ask open questions and use listening statements to help them clarify the way ahead as they see it. Okay, that's the actual conduct of motivation. You ask open questions that are about change. Okay. And you use empathic listening when they reply which reinforces they hear you summarizing what they're saying about change and they have the courage to say more about it. Mm. Those positive answers to your open question that come from them is what we call change talk. Okay. And it's gold dust. It is the person describing in words the fire that's inside them, okay, that can fuel change. And when you hear those words, you want to summarize them for them, ask them another question to amplify, give them the breathing space to say why and how they want to change. Okay. And then summarize what you've heard them say about change. What you often find is that their motivation and commitment is enhanced in front of your eyes. Now, I think what I've just said there is what's at the bottom of the research findings about motivational interviewing. Okay. There, there are now over 2,000 randomized controlled trials on motivational interviewing. Wow. Uh, no. And randomized trials often don't get at the real nuances of the individual conversation, which is what I've tried to do. But I think 
those trials do say something. And I've tried to articulate what it is. It is if you're if you're restrained and you give someone the respect and breathing space to say how they might want to change, they'll be more likely to change. Okay, that's it in one sentence. But we started this with you asking me, yeah, but what do I say to my to my learners, right? I'll share with you my guidelines, personal guidelines. And I came up with this by almost by accident a few years ago. It was during lockdown because I was asked a question like the one you just asked. And I came up with what I called my six C's, okay? And I started talking about it, and now people are writing to me and saying, what are the six C's? I think we put it in the fourth edition. I think. <laughs> but I can't hit They're my six C's, right? Yours might be different. I'm a kind of a impatient, impulsive guy, so my six C's work for me, right? They, might, they don't work for Bill Miller. Right. He is naturally calm, curious. He's, you know. But anyway, mine are, are these. Three of the C's I let go of. I let go of complexity, clutter, and cleverness. Okay. If I want to get into the right state of mind and practice mo- being helpful, I feel I should let go of complex things. Like he's got this problem, that problem, that problem, blah, blah. I should let go of clutter in my mind, which I suppose is a simple way of saying I want to be a bit mindful. Clutter and chatter. And I let go of what is, for me, being the biggest problem, right, which is cleverness. Okay. Because I I practiced for many years as a psychologist believing that it was my cleverness that was going to help solve someone's problem. (laughs) All right. The, and the, the issue is the cleverness is really in the person. You want to tap into their cleverness, not yours. Exactly, so, exactly. So you, you uh, let go. That's that expert. It's almost like the removing the expert hat we talk about. I love yeah. that, though. That's That phrases okay. it nicely. So I let go of three Cs, complexity, clutter, and cleverness. Okay. Right? And I hold on to three others. Right? They're also Cs, Right? which is calm, curious, and compassionate. So what you're saying is that was through self-reflection. That's you. Bill would have a different list, potentially. I think he quite liked this when I shared it with him about a year ago. He said, yeah, okay, let's put it in the book. It's one way of looking at it, right? It might be different for him. Okay, I don't know, but I would encourage learners to treat what I've presented to you there as something to provoke them to think about how do they get into a state of mind where they are genuine, compassionate, curious, authentic in wanting to help someone. And if they want to use motivational interviewing, they want to be calm, a little bit, quite a lot detached from the outcome. And they want to search with this person for their own good reasons to change. Yeah. 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 All right. I'm just going to, I, I jotted this down. I know everybody else is trying to do that. So rather than rewinding or, or 
moving back 30 seconds in the podcast, those six were let go of complexity, my own cleverness and clutter, and then hold yeah. on to calm, curious and compassionate um, yeah. to create that state of mind, that, that genuine curious, I want to help this person move where they want to move, not where I want to move them. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's very helpful. I've got so many somewhere questions there, here. Somewhere in there, I think of what I'm saying is I need to be emotionally regulated. Yes. Which, which Bill Miller definitely doesn't need to be because he's very emotionally regulated. I'm not. So I need to calm down. Right. And I, I need to get rid of cleverness. You know what I mean? So, but I think being emotionally regulated is really important if you want to be helpful in this way. All right. So let's take a little U-turn, go back. You were talking about parenting uh, earlier. We didn't really go down that path specifically, but it seems to fit nicely into this with the, you genuinely want to help your kids. You want it to be fun. That love is there, but that last piece where you let go of the desired outcome seems particularly difficult as a parent any advice for the parents listening to this that are saying, Oh, this would be great with my teenager or my, you just mentioned a 12 year old. What, or can you just not use it in parenting because you're too connected to a positive outcome for that child? I certainly don't think you can. um, Let me put it this way. If you, if you're over-invested in the outcome, you're going to be in trouble. It's it's what's really difficult about parenting. I am very in, over-invested in, in the outcome of this kid using le- screens less daily, like most parents are at sure. the moment. Sure. Now, I've got to find other ways of discussing this with him. And I can't say when I do, it's always consistent with motivational interviewing. I notice some consistencies, right? One of which is respect and affection and love. Mm. Okay. I think they, it, it's pretty cool. If I view this as a behavioral outcome that I want changed, forget about it. It doesn't work. And I don't think you can say, okay, therefore I'll use MI. But there are scenarios at home where using MI I have found to be invaluable, mm. okay? But it's it's not so much a behavior that I want changing, but a growth challenge faced by the child. Okay? That's completely different. Okay? So this morning he said to me in this new school, yeah, now I've got a sore throat. And I said to him, why do you think you've got a sore throat, my sweetheart? And he said, was obvious he was tense about Monday morning. Okay, that's a new school, different culture, different language. It's not easy for the boy. And I found it very easy to be consistent with MI with him. Right. Very easy. And I was using MI. I said to him, listen, my sweetheart, what for you is the best way to get through this day and how much help do you want from me? Mm. Now, what I heard was change mm. talk. He said, Dad, would you walk me to school this morning? I said, sure, my man. What else will help? He said, well, I haven't got my ba 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 ba. And I said, what's going to help? Now, I'm using MI with him, okay, because it's his growth challenge. It's not a behavior I want to 
have changed. So I would say at home, there's one of two kind of routes. The stuff about behavior and screens and stuff, I think MI is not very useful. I'll be amazed if anybody ever tries to do a study of that. I don't think it'll work. <laughs> but but using MI in a simple situation like I've just described, absolutely. And you get better outcomes because he felt supported. I went to school with him, gave him a five, but they were his own ideas about how he wanted to to grow and change. And it can be used in, in, in where there's serious problems. Like I think I did put this in the book as a story. When she was 16, my daughter came home crying from school saying she's got to confess that for the past month she's been having her lunch in the toilet because the kids are making anti-Semitic remarks to her in the dining room, okay? And she's eating her breakfast in the toilet, her lunch in the toilet, okay? Now, when I look back on how we handled that, I reckon it was very consistent with MI. In other words, we saw it as an opportunity for growth, right? I restrained my, the writing reflex because I wanted to go straight up to the school, read the right <laughs> ahead. Strangle right? someone, and, yeah. And pull the kid out of the school. And then my oldest son, who's a police officer, heard it. He said, "That those kids are breaking the law. I'm going in there. And I said, no, just keep away. So we restrained all those <laughs> impulses, right? And we simply put it to my daughter, how does she want to handle this in a way that she's less of a victim and mm, takes charge? Wow. Okay. So there's a good example of an open question about change that you might use with an addict or somebody who's trying to be healthy or whatever. It's an open question about change that you don't know the answer to, but you – sure as hell want them to find it. Okay. And we listened like hell to, and we struggled with her. What, 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 how can you turn this around? And she did. She saw this as an, got to see it as an opportunity to champion her rights Mm. and to stand up for herself. And we gave her support to do that. And she, it was very well received. Some of the kids did get into trouble. One of them got chucked out of school, blah, blah, blah. But she flourished as a result and developed an interest in human rights. Wow. As a result of that trauma, right? Wow. Saying it was problem-free for her. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that, right? It, 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 it wasn't an easy problem-free journey. But what I am saying is that um, – this is a form of helpfulness that can be recognized in everyday life. The value of it can be recognized in everyday life. But it's not to solve a problem in someone. It's to help them find their own way to growth and change. And that wasn't where we started with MI. It was about uh, behavior change, addictive behavior change, right? Or healthcare about, you know, losing weight. But where we've got to in the fourth edition is what I've just described to you, which is that it's a constructive conversation about change in someone's own best interests that has psychological growth as, as its fuel. Yeah. Yeah. How's that, man? That is 
Glorious. And folks, he keeps mentioning this book. We'll have a link to that. All the coaches and counselors listening to this already have that book, most likely. But for those of you who are saying, hmm, this sounds super fascinating. I want more. We'll have a link to that. Um, wow, I've still got so many questions I want to get into. What? Let's talk internationally here. It, it's it's utilized across many languages and cultures. What's what's happening there? That's that's not a that doesn't always happen with with some of these strategies. Why has it resonated so well across so many different cultures and settings? Yeah, it's, that was a surprise because there've been scores of translations to different languages. And um, I have been all over the world and I've got a particular attachment to Southern Africa and Africa because that's where I grew up and have been all over some of the poorest countries in the world. Where there is a, I don't want to overstate it, but I've been there in response to interest in motivational interviewing. It seems to be linked to principles across cultures. And now we could say, well, what are those principles? And I think you and I have discussed them. Respect for everybody, whatever their culture or language groups, appreciates being heard, appreciates a, a loving and constructive conversation about how they might do better in the world. Probably that's the reason why it travels so well, but it probably also speaks to a realization that hammering away at people, whatever their culture, to do this and do that, it's not only ineffective, but has a damaging effect on the people who try and do it. So it's quite possible that that, that this is governed by, weirdly, a sort of a self-interest in preserving our sanity, the sanity of a group of nurses in the Namibian desert with queues of people coming in, they suffer emotionally and mentally from running through a tick-spock exercise in which they're haranguing people to change. And the interest in motivational interviewing is because conversations about change are very common. People like being listened to. And then this third reason, which I think is it's good for their own well-being to 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 use a, a style like this in helping other people. And you and I are, are well familiar with the agony of burnout in organizations of all kinds. Absolutely. For all, yeah. And that some of that is because there's too many people telling too many other people what to do in a, in a manner that lacks compassion and kindness. Right. Can I just say, you know? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about this one. I, change talk. And as you were describing some of those, I, I started thinking of what about the, the person that's just always negative? We, we all have some of those folks in our lives or our work setting or whatever. Do, do you just have to listen harder to hear their change talk? Or are there literally some people that, it's just negative. It's just, there's no upside. I don't want to change. No, that's just the way I'm going to be. I don't mess with it. Or is it always there? We just need to get that radar tuned up a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. And I think it would be 
arrogant and oversimplified to say, oh, don't worry, Brad, use motivational interviewing. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I, I think that that would be beyond arrogant. People are complicated. There's no simple answer to a question like that. And I know the scenario you describe. I've had plenty conversations with people where I thought they went well and they no change happened. Mm. This is tough. You know, if if I'm lucky enough to carry on con- conversing with them, I've got a, a sportsman at the moment, right? And when I'm finished this call, I'm going to message him, right? Because I don't feel I'm getting anywhere with him, but what, what I am going to do is be authentic and honest. Mm. Okay. And have a look at this lack of progress together and be honest with him about the fact that I puzzled by his lack of progress. Now, he might be depressed, okay, which could make it really hard for him. But there's a puzzle, and and all I'm going to do is be authentic and honest with him about my commitment to unraveling that puzzle. But that's in the context of a relationship that I've already got with him, and and you can see it's a struggle. But being authentic and open with somebody, rather than falling into a trap of thinking, oh, I've got to be clever now. There's Mm. some new clever idea like motivational interviewing, which is going to – that's a trap. But, you know, we're also talking about here sharing an observation with somebody or even wanting to give him advice. How would I do that? Okay. And, you know, we haven't talked about that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring, bring, bring bring that. We need that because folks are sitting there saying, but, but what if I do have some expertise to share at how do we bring that into that conversation? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll extend the fantasy of this athlete. I'm Perfect. camouflaging Perfect. the gender, everything about it, so there's no risk of confidentiality. But let's say I feel that he's running away from facing these problems in the, in the team. So somebody operating elite, high earner elite, right? And that his best advice is, my best advice is to take a week off because that's where his energy is going, is to back off. But he decides to take control and take a week off and then go back in and see if we can get him back in fresh. Let's say that's what I believe. Like I've been in this situation plenty of times. Now I've got a clear bit of advice. What I would use is this ask, offer, ask framework. Okay. So I would start the conversation with him by saying I wanted to give him some advice, okay? And it's very clear advice about what I think he should do, but he'll be the best person to make his own mind up about whether my advice is worthwhile. That we can discuss afterwards. But first, let me ask you, what do you think is the best way to deal with this now? Because you don't want to go back into the environment. You're not feeling yourself, so and so and so. So that's the first ask phase. So I would ask him what his views are. I would summarize his views, and then I'd say, would you mind if I offer you my advice now? So now I move into offer. And this can be done in five minutes, or it could be done in 50, depending on. Sure. When I offer the advice, I don't dump it on him. I don't moralize with him. I offer this 
I'll offer it up to him in an attitude of respect, not dump it down on him as if he should do what I tell him. Big difference. Offering up, the word offer is quite interesting because he can turn down an offer, right? I'll offer it up in an attitude of respect and I use language that resonates accordingly. In other words, I'll be using words like you might do this rather than you should. Mm. One thing you could do is this. You're not backing the answer. You're saying, Mike, I've got a strong view. You should do this. But one thing, it's going to be your choice. One thing you might do here is just take 10 days off. Okay. And I wonder if I could clarify the ex- why I say that. And the person will say yes. And I clarify. But then I go to the third ask phase and I say, listen, I presented quite a passionate argument here for taking 10 days off. Where does it sit with you? Mm. Now, this is where you need to really listen. This is where all my years of learning the skill of empathic listening is going to come to the fore. Okay. Because here lies the fuel and the seeds for his change. And I've been in a situation like this where somebody took the advice, okay, took the week or 10 days off, went back in and just broke records. The the performance was so stunning. So, But it was founded on me giving him advice. It's how you do it. Well, and that's what I was going to say. How do you – sure is the wrong word, but how do you manage – because you may be very convincing. You may come in, in your situation, you have this incredible background, you're well-respected, people look to you for that advice. So how do you keep that person from overweighting your advice in their, when you get to that last ask and it's fresh off of your expertise and background and everything else, that they make that choice because of you, not because of them. Because I would hope that I'm calm, curious, and compassionate when I do it. it. Okay. So I might say to you, look, this, you know, I, I might have mentioned that I feel strongly about this, but I don't want to be clever here. I'm calm, curious, and compassionate. Got it. But I need to be detached when I offer this advice. And time, I've had this experience often where people go, I'll go in and think about it. And then I contact them and they say, no, for this reason. Then three months later, I realized that was a smart decision mm. they made mm. to ignore my advice. So I've had the delight of sharing with them how wrong I was. Yeah. And that that humility and authenticity on both of our parts is what makes for a constructive conversation. So you've got to be careful about being too passionate. You want to be calm, curious, compassionate, and very respectful of whatever they want to do. Because they are the experts in themselves. So maybe maybe we need to put a slash on compassionate and call it compassionate. There's a new word for your next book. Uh, Let's wrap up with kind of a, a combo here. 
you, you've been doing things in, in so many different areas. You mentioned schools, originally addictions, education, healthcare. You're doing a lot with sports. We had Jonathan Fader on the podcast. I know you've written a book with him. Um, what are you most excited about now with MI as you look forward at the next five to 10 years? Where do you see it going? Where do you see it developing? What do you see it impacting that maybe it's just getting a foothold or being introduced into at this point? I, I to be honest, I guess because I'm in my 70s now, I've kind of let go of that kind of sense of ambition. And I think we've written this fourth edition where we clarify that this is a form of helpfulness and it can be used in so many settings. I, I, I think the challenge isn't in clarifying its relevance. The challenge is in helping folk learn it. So I'm not into ever widening horizons. I think we've clarified it. You can use it with a friend. You can, I use it with my daughter. Use it with my son this morning. I think the relevance, the breadth of it is fine. It's used in terror suspect interviewing. I mean, that's a field going for 10, 15 years. I think the challenge is in actually not who are these people that we can use MI with. The challenge is how to help helpers to learn the mindset and advantages of being calm and curious with others when they help. That's where I think the, the, the work needs to be done. It's not as sexy as saying, oh, it's used in terror suspect interviewing or, you know, uh, what can I say? Uh, what's his name? Carol in the Seattle Seahawks uses it or whatever, you know, that's all sexy stuff. But no, it's actually in helping people learn to use the skills themselves. And so I think that's where the, 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 the progress is going to be made. But it probably won't be me, man. It probably won't be me that does it because <laughs> I'm the life. Well, Dr. Rolnick, thank you so much. This was a pleasure, fun you, you, I think you applied all these C's to the interview. So thank you for bringing all of you. Thanks for making a difference out there. And so many people appreciate it. No problem. Delighted to help, Brad. Wow. What an honor. Thank you so much to Dr. Stephen Rolnick. And just a reminder, we had his co-developer, Dr. Bill Miller, which he mentioned several times. We had him on the podcast for our 200th episode. We'll provide a direct link to that in the description if you missed that the first time around. During the intro, I briefly mentioned the new 360 well-being checkup option for employers. But what exactly is that? Very simple. 65% of us regularly see our dentist to check our teeth and gums, but almost none of us have the opportunity to do the same for our mental and physical well-being. The 360 well-being checkup changes that, providing employers with a low-cost way to support their employee team members in a meaningful, meaningful way. If you want to learn more, please reach out to me directly. My personal email is bcooper at catalystcoaching360.com. This is such a key area, such an important area for employers right now. I would love to talk to you about it personally. And now it's time to be a catalyst. This is Catalyst Coaching 360, Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.